Hi, y'all, and welcome back to Peachy Keen. I'm Vivian Liddell, and this is my podcast. For today's episode, episode number 25, I braved the Blackberry winter and headed back to our home base of sorts, Atlanta, Georgia, where I set up camp in the back room at Sandler Hudson Gallery to talk to artist Donna Mitz about her recent exhibition there, Ex Astris. Donna is an artist and also writes about art, and her artwork can be found in the collections of the High Museum of Art, the Mobile Museum of Art, and the Museum of Contemporary Art of Georgia. The front gallery of her exhibition contains several large-scale works on stretched canvas and one on panel that I'm going to call paintings, as well as one that was more of an assemblage of papers and small objects on hanging linen, all of them finished in gold. The entire back wall, which faced the entrance, was covered in maybe a couple of hundred little gold boxes, cast from the kind of milk cartons that you find at elementary schools. And then there were several more smaller works on paper, and found large format negatives, and another large-scale work, the color of tarnished silver, in the back room, where we were sitting. In fact, the one silver piece, the one that we sat in front of while we talked for this episode, was partially responsible for our conversation. Donna reached out to me after having a podcast experience. She was struggling with the piece, which was still gold and clay the day of the install, and during a sleepless night decided to listen to Peachy Keen, episode 23, with Katie Hargrave and Meredith Lynn. She credits this experience with helping her clear her head to come to a resolution for that particular painting, and said that after listening to our voices, it came to her that the piece didn't have to be gold. It could be silver. I'm glad she shared that story with me and that the podcast helped her in a dark studio moment. It's funny to me that the podcast itself sort of functions the same way that painting does. The process of it is fleeting and impossible to recapture, but then it exists like painting as a permanent record with every person that listens taking away something different. There's a lot to take away from this episode. I hope you all enjoy listening to Donna Mintz talk about her work as much as I did. Check it out. So you got your MFA at Swanee. I did. University of the South, and that was in writing? Uh-huh. Okay. And do you have a BFA as well? Where is that? Mm, no, I do not. You do I have not? A BS. Okay. From, and that's the reason I went to Swanee as a 56-year-old. Uh-huh. Went, returned to school because I didn't get the education that I wanted, and I loved to learn, and I just thought, I'm not finished. And this presented itself and I didn't go to Sewanee to learn to write but mm-hmm. I sure did mm-hmm. I went to go back to school and it's a wonderful place I'm indebted to it so, so what my, did you study as an undergrad wait it was a, a long time what, before your I'm masters. happy to talk about this but I will tell you this is my least favorite subject oh because which is why I think I went to grad school as a 56 okay. year old because I just I feel like I have spent my life correcting uh-huh. Um, not not a not a bad choice, but my own, my only choice. You know, it was kind of. Um, I came from Gain- I grew up in Gainesville, Georgia, mm-hmm. and to me, in my limited environment, Florida was the most exotic, <laughs> elegant place in the whole wide world. In my whole wide world, because right. my world wasn't very wide, and I went to a small liberal arts. school school called Florida Southern uh-huh. College in Lakeland and I knew as soon as I got there it was not for me but I was from the go home with the one that brought me a school right and I just thought finish and get out of there as soon as, as you can and I did and I had a double major in uh, majored in uh, psychology and biology okay. because those were the cla- the things left to me mm-hmm. when do you remember the clep tests yes when i took all those tests i clepped the humanities and the english and all the things i loved and what and what was left was uh, science and math i hated math uh-huh. so i picked biology and i did love to think how things work so i i, I enjoyed that also but i've been uh, well, I kind of started make, been making. I made up for it for forty years. I understand that. <laughs> and yeah. I'm finally when I returned to Swanee, I I went with the, just the enthusiasm and the 
love of of somebody my age. I think I just appreciated it so much more. And it was a great place. And had you been writing before you went to Swanee? No, I think no, I had not. I mean, to, for myself, right? Had been, mm-hmm. But I had never uh, put anything out there, and I'm I I will I'll, I'll say this quite boldly. I think I'm a natural writer. I'm a natural storyteller. <laughs> and I think it found its way in my art in artwork. Mm-hmm. I, I, I became an artist to tell a story about whatever it is I'm still trying to figure out. I think my work has been since the very beginning about memory and place and the hold of both on a person. Um, certainly I found it in literature and I it, it came to me through uh, through dirt, <laughs> through the through the literal ground. Are we? Are we? Is this for? Is this real? This is live. Oh, oh, this yeah. is real. I'm turning okay. it up a little bit because okay. your your voice is still okay. a little I don't soft. Know so. If we were real or not? Yet. Oh yeah, we're real. So, um, so when did you start making things that you would consider art objects? Like how long have you been doing that? Uh, so, well, since. Um, I would say though, mid '90s. Not okay. that long. I mean, well, actually, that's not true. I, I made things. I had a um, a, a s- small business making things that were sold through the gift mart. Mm-hmm. Robin Sandler probably doesn't want the world to know that. <laughs> but anyway, I started making, I, I did that, and I had lots of employees, and we worked out of my backyard. I had a cottage in the backyard of my house. And it just ran me in the ground. I was you know, working for everybody but myself, for the mm-hmm. people that worked for me, for the, for the payroll, for the government, for the, you know, the sales reps, but not for myself. And I just remember saying... I can do better than this. I can do more. This is not what I want to do. And I sold the business and started making my own art. And I... And that was in Atlanta? Uh, it, yes, I I'm, have always lived in Atlanta. Always since the Always since college, yeah. 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 I, I came, after I graduated from college, I went to Georgia Tech for a while in the school, I think, of chemistry, because I thought I would go to med school. Mm-hmm. And that didn't work out. <laughs> So I, had, at the time, had a um, cabin in the mountains of North Georgia, and I would just, I have collections. If we were at my studio, you would see over at the goat farm, I have collections of rocks and feathers and bones. My favorite is a dirt collection and um, uh, in, in various containers some of it is official and some of it's still in baggies labeled that I have one day think I'm going to make a beautiful display of. So you go, everywhere you go, you collect dirt. Everywhere I Like go. how much dirt in each place? Uh, well, it depends on what I have with me. It okay. could be a cup full. It could be a baggie full. It could be an envelope full. It could be mm-hmm. uh, just whatever I find in my pocketbook or my knapsack or my backpack if I forget to bring something. I recently made another trip to the lightning field in mm-hmm. um, New Mexico and forgot. Uh-oh. And as we were driving out, uh, the, the caretaker, uh, when I said, oh, she said, what'd you forget? And I said, I forgot to get some dirt. She said, no, no problem. I'll get you some. So I left her $5 and a baggie and she sent me dirt from the lightning field and even some petrified wood that she mm. gathered from her yard right around there. And so uh, I, I have I've also done the same with water. And I have, I, that was an installation I made one time. I don't want to get ahead of our, of our story, but I went back to um, all the sites. I could remember being in water in my growing up years, which was in North Georgia, and gathered it in plastic water bottles and then found beautiful old colored glass bottles from you know who knows how long ago most of them gotten by pickers out of dumps right and they were beautiful colors and purples and greens and and I had engraved upon the bottle the name of the place where I found where the water came from like Chestatee River right. Amicalola Falls and and made an installation of maybe I think I had 49 different sites and 
I still, you know, I have it in, in my studio. I have the empty bottles now poured back into the Dasani water bottles with big, bold letters on the box. This is not trash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I'd have to go do it again, you know, because every time I, not every time, I think I've installed it in four different places. Mm-hmm. And every time I do, I pour it out of the water bottle into the beautiful bottle and back at the end of the show. So the bottles are all, I think I saw some pictures of this on the uh-huh. website, the bottles are all different colors, uh-huh. Uh-huh. so you can't really see the color of the water. And believe it or not, it bowls me over every time the water is clear. Hmm. It doesn't have any, I know. Well, you should go I to know. the Chesty right now, because I just drove over it yesterday, uh-huh. and it is as brown and muddy oh, as it can be. because of all the rain. Yes. Well, it just, it, well, it, it doesn't have a smell to it. Huh. You know, I just thought surely the first time, I think I did this installation in 05, 2005, mm. here at St. Hudson. And the next time I did it was maybe two years later at, uh, I think it was Georgia College Museum. And I thought, okay, get ready for this and open the bottle. Because one time when I was in high school, my boyfriend, uh, got me water from Daytona Beach because mm-hmm. I couldn't go. It was spring break or something. And I couldn't go. And he said, I'll bring you something. And that's what he brought me. That's really not what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> but he brought me water and then in a vodka bottle. And I found it like a year later in the bottom of my dresser drawer. And I opened it. And oh, ocean water is not the same. Lots yeah. of things died in that water. Right. It was horrible. It was super stinky. So that's yeah. interesting because I had, you're already talking about some things that I had on my uh-huh. my notes over here to talk to you about. You're obviously into collecting. Yes. Um, and have you always been that way? When you were a child, did you collect things? Do you have collections mm-hmm. of things in your house other than things that have to do with place? You uh, know? Well, my, no, my mother said I collected rocks when it, as a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. We, had, we lived in um, my grandparents' guest house. And there was an alley from the street back to our little house where I lived until I was six years old. And it was just gravel. And I, she, my mother said I called them my precious stones. I hadn't thought about that mm-hmm. in probably 50 years. <laughs> I don't have those anymore. <laughs> and I don't think I collected anything else. Let me think about that. Um, no, I've just loved dirt. Mm-hmm. Dirt and rocks dirt and water. Dirt and rocks and water and Maybe feathers. the boyfriend started the water. <laughs> Maybe. I just felt like, um, well, there's a, there's a James Dickey poem. I think it's called Mary Sheffield. But in it, he's remembering being in the water, probably in North Georgia, with, um, in my memory of the recollection of this poem, with a sweetheart you know, maybe a high school or a college sweetheart. And the line of the poem that I love so much is, anywhere, and my apologies to James Dickey if I make this wrong, but anywhere water flows, the breastplate of time rests off me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought about that going back to these places. I went back particularly when it happened to me, when I realized that, viscerally, was going back to... Slaughter Creek, which runs off of Blood Mountain through through what I call Lake Winfield Scott, probably into the lake. But my best friend June had a cabin there, and, and I used to spend summers with her, and we thought we could dam this creek without realizing really that, you know, it's only about this deep. My, for the people out there listening, my hands are, what, two feet, two yeah, feet apart? a foot and a half, maybe. <laughs> it's only about, yeah, a foot and a half deep, so it would not, we wanted to make a swimming hole. But there was nowhere for the water to, you know, to grow, to do that. But I went back, uh, well, whatever that would have been. I remember writing about it, and I was 37 years old, so that would have been 20, 25 years ago. Yeah. And the, the dam, the rocks that we had laid in the creek were still there. Oh, wow. And so it, I just thought, like, wow, this is... A, this is and I could feel it. I could smell it. I could, you know, all those smells that come back to you. Mm-hmm. And I, I just was returned to myself by that, by that water. And I think that's where the idea came from. So I just made a list of all the places like that and went back to every one of them. But they had to be, it couldn't have been like, uh, had to be in that 
circumference of place where mm-hmm. between where I grew up and where I spent summers and winters and that's what I did so interesting and I don't collect I don't I'm not a collector of like some people are collectors of objects for for other reasons like they want to have you know a painting a collection of photographs or of, of this photographer's work or of this painter or these artists and I don't I don't have that I mean I do collect I have some art mm-hmm. but it's not for that reason so you're really interested in time and memory, mm-hmm. it sounds like. And then, you know, I know you said I touched on something you didn't want to talk about, your BFA and your... <laughs> no, I don't have a BFA. And your, yes. your BA and <laughs> your, and your yeah. kind of wasted time there. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering, so I talk with this podcast, it's uh, talking to women about art in uh-huh. the South. Uh-huh. Right? Oh, good. Yeah. So I like to talk about, um, yeah, I'm wondering your experience as being female in the South, mm-hmm. if that plays into this idea of memory or this, you mm-hmm. know, this sense of time lost, or do you, mm-hmm. do you have any kind of, I don't know, the way that you, th- you say that you, you wasted a lot of time mm-hmm. that way. Wow. That's very interesting. And for those of you out there listening, none of these questions is prepared. <laughs> I'm hearing it when you're hearing it. Uh, so I haven't really given that a lot of thought it, as, as it relates to my art making. Mm-hmm. But I have given it a lot of thought as to the person I am returning to as a 60-year-old. Mm-hmm. And there's a gap in there. I think I think I'm returning to my original self, mm-hmm. and this was the person who um, thought about the things I'm thinking about. And I think coming of age in the '60s and '70s, coming in college when things like Title IX were happening, so that when the the, the women in my family, my mother and my grandmothers, lived a very circumscribed uh, defined life the men in my family I think made sure that that happened or they had their own circumscribed uh, roles roles to play and I, I think I was talking to somebody about this the other day that I and this will get a little bit off the subject of art, but into that of literature, until I took a class in the literature of the American South in 2013, as a 56, 7-ish year old, I did not realize how the mythology that, that is we call the lost cause mythology mm-hmm. affected my childhood and the way I grew up. And I wrote uh, a short essay on this about getting to go to uh, the Wren House, which was the home of Joel Chandler Harris. Mm -hmm. And I had read the Uncle Remus stories, or had been read, had them read to me before I could even read. And I thought, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. When we when when we got to go on a field trip in the second grade, I thought I was going to be visiting the home of Uncle Remus, and mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. And I wondered if my family, my parents, knew that. Mm-hmm. And when I went to the to the wren's nest and saw a portrait on the wall of a man that looked like my grandfather, an avuncular, balding, blue-eyed, little round glasses kind of heck chubby and I thought wow I wondered who that was and the docent uh, told me that was told us that was Joel Chandler Harris and I thought he was the kindly old black man with the white hair that you know was telling these stories and who's this I didn't understand that these books these right. stories had been written by a white man and when I read about this later I realized at the time I went to visit the Wren's Nest in maybe, let's say, 62-3, it was segregated. Only white people were allowed to go visit the home of Joel Chandler Harris. It was just, just, it, that, but that's an aside, just, re, just taking this class and 
revisiting how much this affected my youth without any question. Uh, I, I found myself just weeping, mm-hmm. just quietly, just tears started seeping down my cheeks. And um, so, so, so to answer your question, yes, it affects me greatly mm-hmm. being a woman of the South from that generation. And I feel like um, it's something that has captured my interest, soul, attention, um, my desire almost to make up for it, for being actually captive to it and yet owing to the world for having been, you know. Right. It, it's a, it's such a it's such a complicated mm. subject that is the, in my opinion, it's the it's the story of this nation that we were that we were a, we were founded as a, as a slave state. The whole country was. Right. And that we the whole country profited from that, and we are still working our way out. We still have so far to go to be, to work our, our way out of that. And, and um, to, to mention, you started this by talking about the article that I wrote about Lillian Smith. Mm-hmm. And I'll take a chance to say now, uh, Hal Jacobs has made a wonderful film that he's going to be premiering in May called Breaking the Silence. And that's what that piece was about. Uh, I remember her name in, in my in my home. I remember her book, Strange Fruit. I remember well, what's wrong with that. You know, just the sense of thinking, what's wrong with that? And that's a lot of what this movie, uh, the, the documentary addresses, is her role, her her uns. Um, it's it's a movie. I was thinking Hal had asked me. I previewed it the other day, and Hal had asked me for some notes and to. To talk about him, what what I to talk to him about what I thought about it, and it's really a film about contradiction, about this woman who was so instrumental in the lives of and important in the lives of people in the student movement, like Lonnie King. She was a, an intimate of Martin Luther King and Coretta mm-hmm. Scott King, and James Baldwin, and and and. Um, Paul Robeson and his wife, and she used to hold salons in her Clayton, Georgia mountaintop home where people like Lonnie King, on the film and in writing, remembers going to her house and how wonderful she was. And yet, she is the figure who was so instrumental in this, in this movement and cared so deeply about it that so few people know about. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's trying to that's not, that would be a mischaracterization. He's not trying to change that. He's just illuminating her life and letting people see for themselves. But you know, what, what I want the subtext to be, breaking the silence subtext, the, the most important woman in civil rights that you've never heard of. You know, mm-hmm. she, she was... Uh, so, so anyway, so it's a lot about contrast, about her place in, in a... She grew up in a, in a you know, classical... Uh, classic middle upper middle class white home and she was raised to be one way and she became her own person she was her own person in life in love she lived with a woman named Paula Snelling mm-hmm. and and they were uh, although Lillian never really I don't I don't think she characterized it this way but they were clearly in love with one another and from Till the day they died, till the day she died, um, she was with. Mar- uh, she had cancer, and Martin Luther King and Coretta were taking her to Emory Hospital, and he was pulled over, ostensibly for I think maybe a traffic uh, violation of a taillight being out, something simple like that. But he was pulled over. But the real reason he was pulled over is he. Had a white woman in the front seat of his car and right. arrested. Yeah, so that's yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, yeah. I have a, a I'm a little younger than you, but uh-huh. I really understand what you're saying about uh-huh. 
being raised one way and then having these prescribed roles Mm -hmm. that it can take in my case I think it took me about 20 years to kind of break free of that and Mm -hmm. also to return to the person that I was as a child Mm -hmm. you know before you realized that you were supposed to fill these certain before you realized you realized you know even to realize yes yeah yeah it's very interesting so where where are you from We're at Sandler Hudson Gallery. <laughs> it yeah, is a place so of business. We did not mention that, but we are sitting in the back room at Sandler Hudson um, with some of your artwork and then the rest of your artwork in the front room. So, yeah, we've got a couple of trains going by here in the background and some phones ringing. Um, I'm from Memphis. Oh, you are. Originally. and then But I grew my high school years I spent in Albany, Georgia. Um, so very different, um, very kind of more rural. Why did you, it that your parents moved to Albany? My dad worked for Miller uh-huh. um, Brewery, uh-huh. and so he. Was, and you don't say Albany? No, I feel like I've had this conversation <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> sorry, so sorry, but it's a, yeah. Uh, everyone, I don't know anybody in Albany that says uh-huh. that. Um, they don't call it Albany High. Interesting. They call it Albany High. Like I think it's just a weird handshake ritual that you do with people you don't know, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Oh, you're from Albany," and I'm uh-huh. like, "Nobody says that there." Uh-huh. I just I don't like to play those kind of uh-huh. games. I think as artists, you know, yeah. a lot of us are just straight talkers. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it is. It's not. I don't. Mm-hmm. I just don't see that as a real thing. Mm-hmm. I never. I've heard, never been there. So I never I, heard people I, saying. I don't know. I haven't been there in a long time. Speaking of twenty years, mm-hmm. it's. Uh, I think the late 90s is the last time I was in Albany. But anyway, let's talk a little bit about the work that we are sitting here with. I actually came here a few weeks ago with my students um, and brought them to look at your show. Let's see if I can. I asked them if they had any questions oh, good. that I could ask you. Uh-huh. And I think we've already started to get into one of their questions, which was they wanted to know, where do your materials come from? So we started talking about that a little bit. But there's this show is, in my opinion, all about the materials. Mm-hmm. So I think we can go a lot deeper sure. with that question. So you've started talking sure. about collections of rocks. Um, everything in here is like... It appears to be gilded in gold mm-hmm. and if I read your statement correctly it is real gold that it is gilded in uh, is yeah. some of the things are gilded some of in? it is some of it is is, is is real gold leaf most of it is composition gold which is a fancy word uh, a better word than imitation mm-hmm. <laughs> but it but it's a, a material it's a um, composite of I think brass nickel and zinc uh, the color is natural but the real gold leaf is a hundred dollars for mm. what would cover about about three feet, I think, of, of space. And some of these are so many layers deep because I cha- I make it and then change my mind and then I change my mind back and I just keep building it up, up, up. But there is there is real gold in every one of them, but not every one of them is all gold. Gotcha. It would have. I mean, I almost broke the bank anyway, <laughs> but it would have really broken the bank. And there's a real variety of uh-huh. materials here. So uh-huh. some, you know, you say you collect things. Uh-huh. This is not as much about place as your other work? No. no, it's not, although there is place in every piece. Uh-huh. And I didn't really set out to do it that way. But I, I, if, I if I may start to answer that question. Sure. At the be- I start at the beginning of what I, the beginning of the end. What I realized at the end of the making of this work was that it was really all about the ideas, I, the deep, um, deep ideas I'm pondering in a book I'm writing about about two opposite, two seemingly opposite, disparate works of art that address the sublime mm-hmm. and. The word sublime is, I think we overuse that word, but I mean it in the sense, the literary and the uh, poetic sense of the, uh, well, the, the word itself is a contra- is a conjunction of two word, two uh, Latin phrases, sub and lemon. Sub means, means beneath or, or up to, 
and lemon means just below or means threshold. So sublime is that which, to me, the way I interpret it and the way the Romantics interpret it is, uh, there's a, it, it's that which we kind of sense and feel, but cannot quite a describe and b sense with our senses, but we know it. You know, we just it's this it's this beauty and that we usually approach through beauty and awe and wonder. As I mentioned earlier, my work is, I think, always in some way about memory, an investigation of it, a, a, a manifestation of it, a portrayal of it somehow, obliquely. But um, I love a line that the writer uh, Vladimir Nabokov said about his, his own memoirs, if its subject is memory, its medium is awe and beauty. Perfect expression of what I think, how I would characterize this work. It wasn't really what I was, I never set out to do anything. I just started doing it. And I always figured out later. I figured out when I write my statement. And so, I t so therefore, a lot of what is beneath these paintings, almost every one of them, has some for instance, where the sea used to be over there on the wall is a big, looks like tarnished silver. But it started out as a painting that was all white that I made from kaolin, which is white clay that I gathered down on the fall line of Georgia, which is a line, that, a geographic line that runs like a, like a safety patrol belt across the mm -hmm. state of Georgia, and it's where an ancient sea used, it's the shoreline of the ancient sea that used to cover Georgia, come up to that point. And um, it, I had made, a, my, the body of work right before that had been made of graphite, all graphite, just dark gray paintings, one of which is under that gold painting mm -hmm. on the wall in there. And I just was switched, it was tired of that dark, dark gray, and I went to, to make a whole body of work about this white kale and that it, it was, in fact, where the sea used to be. It was mm -hmm. beneath the sea. And that came from the fact that I had been spent a, a lot of time looking for um, the lost grave of my great-grandfather that is, is a whole other story. <laughs> it's a really great story because I found it. Oh. But I spent a lot of time down there in that place, and I made sound recordings mm. um, when I was there one, one time. Um, when I couldn't find anything to tell me where he was, I thought maybe the sound would tell me. Mm -hmm. um, and I just spent some time down there thinking it would come to me somehow. And long story short, for another occasion maybe, but it did. I found it against all odds. And that started a whole other mystery and story. But I gathered a bunch of that clay while I was down there. And I don't know why I got started on that. We were talking about memory. Okay, so, 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 the idea of the reliquary mm -hmm. is really what started this body of work, and what those small sculptures are on the wall. There's a wall um, out there of 200, and I made 216, but only 207 made it to the wall, and the idea came to me uh, through the the Catholic reliquary most of us are familiar with that as a container for some holy relic whether it was the relic of the true cross or the bones of saint patrick or the cloth from saint teresa's gowns they were containers designed to hold an object and as we look at it today, it matters really whether or not it is a relic of the true cross. What matters is what we endow it with and, and making it beautiful, making that memory or that object hallowed made it beautiful and vice versa. So I made uh, these containers at, on the wall out there. And in... I can hear a fan yeah. up here. Let's, I can too. Stop for a we'll second. Stop for a second, yeah. and then okay. we'll pick up with you. Talking about a bathroom fan came on, and I told Donna we would take a little break from recording, and that I would edit the fan section out. While we were on our air quotes break from recording, 
I did some sound checking because I was worried about her voice being too low with all the ambient room noise. And Donna, the storyteller, continued to tell a funny little bit about her voice at a reading she did, which I hated to edit out. So I'm leaving it in for you guys, even though it was a bit off topic and we were supposedly not recording. My biggest worry is that you're uh, too quiet. <laughs> That's the I've got it on okay, like full volume over here. I can't. I, and I sound maybe I have like a maybe I have some kind of funky, you know, ear to throat to you know thing because it sounds really close to me. I sound loud. <clears throat> my voice is scratchy this morning from the pollen. Um, still hear the fan. No, I mean it's a. We're just. Worried. I think you just have a soothing. Voice and it's uh, <coughs> yeah. It's, I was one time I was doing a reading at that Swanee, and when I finished, and it was really a, it was a really a um, a dramatic story about. I found a photograph. I'm, I'm a student of the literature of the Vietnam War, and I went to see a show in New York, and saw a photograph that just and I knew almost. I knew almost all these photographs, but then I got to one that just absolutely stood me still um, about... We're not taping right now. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, it was a soldier from 1965 in the Vietnam, in the jungle of the Vietnam, in Coochie and during the Vietnam War. And it was the most beautiful photograph of the cost of war on an individual boy that I've ever seen. And I thought, I have to find out what happened to that that soldier and I drove 800 miles to jail Oklahoma to talk to him 60 years later and now we're like best friends but I was reading this story and, and I was fighting back tears and I was reading the story and I saw these two women start you know talking and, and talking and talking and at the end they came up to me and said we're so sorry if we if you because we saw you see us but do you have you ever heard of that website? And she called it by name, and I've never heard of it. It's initials, and mm-hmm. it's people who sounds like a little fetishistic to me, but people who love to hear tutorials about people talking like this. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. Spray, they said you should do that. You could make so much money. Oh, that's so funny because <laughs> there's a name for it. It's like ASMR. Yeah, yeah it's got some like letters. That. I just heard about this uh-huh. the other day, and I read the list of things that were supposed to be soothing to people, and I was yeah. like, all of those things annoyed me. <laughs> <laughs> to me it's like rustling, like rustling paper, brushes, rustling yeah. things, and and I, I thought I thought they were being so rude because they were like talking through this through the most sensitive part of what I was telling <laughs> and they were talking about that crazy website but anyway anyway so it's, it's still recording but we'll just like so you were so, starting to talk about the containers uh-huh. that your um this wall sculpture right here all the reliquaries I guess we could call them those that's right? what, exactly what they are and yeah. that's what the title of the installation is called reliquary and I, um, not in every one of them, but as I began making them, they're made from plaster, which I you know, mix up and pour into molds that, I, that I, I don't know how to make them. I'm not a sculptor. I don't know how to build things, so I just do what I, I figure out a way. Mm-hmm. And my way was to go down to E-Rivers Elementary School, shout out to Mr. <laughs> Mr. P down there, who helped me collect uh, milk cartons. They have these little dainty little mini milk cartons. What made there. you want to get milk cartons? Because I don't know how to make anything and I knew I wanted the shape. So if you take apart a milk carton, I cut out the bottom and opened them up and then stapled the tops together and made these molds. But they're kind of perfect, you know, exactly. to uh, talk about childhood. <laughs> it has nothing this, to do with that. But that's what that it made me be, think that of. That would like, be utterly, uh, you know, you, you, may, you absolutely may think that if you want to, but that, that was not on my mind at all. It was simply a way of thinking, how am I going to do this mm-hmm. when I don't know how to build and I don't know how, I'm not a carpenter or a sculptor. It just occurred to me. That's what I did. So there's little objects inside of the uh-huh. plaster that you poured. Uh-huh. What kind of things are in there? Uh, what kinds of things are things like we just talked about, like little rocks, uh-huh. things I found on, on beaches or in walks in the woods. There are pieces of paper that I of notes that I have written, which I want to I want to get to that because that's very important to me. Um, things I have written or that. Uh, others have written to me that I've saved. 
So are each one somehow cataloged? Because once you put the gold on it's them, gone. they all look the same. That's exactly right. That's, that's purposeful. <laughs> they each has a number. I've numbered them because mm-hmm. I plan to continue on with this. And I, I want to know how many, and you know, I, I, they are numbered. But I never made a record of what is in each one. And I numbered them not in the order in which I made them. I numbered them after the fact. So... I have no idea what is in each one, or even if each if, if an individual one has a, an object in it, because I didn't put one in every one, because it didn't occur to me right off the bat. So I like that idea because it's the same with with the reliquary, and that you'll see it in a, in any uh, cathedral or at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You don't know, is it really what the things we mentioned? Is it really the 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 you know? piece of the skull of this particular saint doesn't really matter I know that I put them in there and I know in some of them uh, because some of them is sticking out in the bottom <laughs> <laughs> so I know it's in those but that, that is all that appealed to me very much that I didn't know and then from there I began thinking of well actually these small pieces are really the first ideas I had I just was making little little studies and I never intended for them to be seen or shown. So what are these? So we've got five <clears throat> small framed pieces mm-hmm. of are those papers? They are they are works on paper um, and they are just like the two big paintings out there which look like mosaics. I made all this work from my own writing. Part of which is probably because I just uh, moved and uh, thought, what am I going to do with all these papers? Having graduated from you know, grad school and all these things I wrote that were just really significant to me, but with the computer and printers, we now, you know, I have like three copies of everything, right. which I didn't need, but I couldn't bear to throw them away. So I cut them up and I made, I collaged them, and that's what all this gold is collaged. Um, found in personal papers, mostly my own personal papers, that I cut into small mosaic-sized pieces. And like the, the gold mosaics in uh, the, from the Byzantine and, and earlier from Roman and Byzantine and, and in medieval times, they reflect light in, in Jerry Cullum's I may say, magnificent <laughs> review, which, which meant so much to me. His, the last lines of that review, I can't quote them, but are, I'm gonna, I've told my children it will be my epitaph. <laughs> Just go ahead and, and use those. Um, he, he mentioned uh, a line from Ezra Pound about the, who, who was writing, I think, about Venice in these particular cantos. Um, the gold gathers the light to it, and once again, apologies to Ezra Pound. That's not exactly right either. But, but it, but that's what the, that was the purpose of them in the Byzantine uh, churches was to evoke and invoke the presence of God. Mm-hmm. That is not at all what I intended. But I, but I was thinking of that beauty and that, again, that Nabokov line about. Uh, if the subject is memory, if the if the subject is memory, its medium is awe and beauty. But you did mention prayer, something mm-hmm. about approximating prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, where did I say that? And uh, <laughs> you know, I don't even know where I read sure that. I, do. I, I oh, think I it was in your artist statement. And you were I talking know. about the um, lightning fields uh-huh. and uh, let us now praise famous men. Yeah. Yeah. And how those you'd mentioned the lightning fields already, yeah. but you didn't well, quite the, get around the, to your the, book. The book I'm writing is based on the thesis that I wrote, my graduate thesis about James Agee, and basically just my obsession with uh, the, the book he wrote with uh, Walker Evans, who did the photographs. James Agee wrote every word, but, but the credit is always given to both of them, as he wanted it to be. But the ideas in, those, in that book, which is nominally about t- tenant far- poor, poor, poor tenant farmers in Depression era Alabama. That in, in in name only is it about that. It's really about James Agee's own own experience of of the divinity of the human soul. And he was a deep and complicated, flawed human who um, 
I think I was put on this earth to, to, to I don't know, to describe for the world when they see him like I do. Anyway, uh, that's another whole other subject. But, but the ideas in that book, the ideas of beauty and, and um, just impermanence of the human life mm. in the tableau of the permanence of life with a capital L, time with a lowercase t against time with a capital T. Just a story of, it's a book of paradox. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the lightning field which is uh, Walter de Maria's 1977 installation in the, in the High Plains Desert of New Mexico, uh, the ingredients of which are the most prosaic you can list. It's stainless steel poles in the dirt. So the ingredients are these, these 400 poles, uh, the dust of the desert floor and sky and light, and it measures a, a kilometer by a mile. 400 poles set into a grid, 16 by 25 poles, kilometer by mile, and the artist mandated that you, that the individual spend 24 hours with the work in the field. You stay six people at a time in a cabin that's from a homesteader's cabin from 1920 so that you can see the light play off of these stainless steel poles. And when you read about it, 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 it sounds impossible that it can even approach beauty because the poles are two inches, two and a half inches in diameter, so they're very narrow, mm-hmm. and they're placed 220 feet apart from one another linearly, and on the diagonal they're 304 feet apart. So it's not even human scale, it's like you're in a football field, right. and the next one is down at the bottom of that. You're at the end zone, and it's at the bottom of the other. It's at the other end zone, but the experience of being in that field, and I wish we had time for me to, to characterize that, but it made manifest all these these paradoxical ideas of your human, the brevity of your human life against against infinity. The you literally. Well, I'll just say what I experienced. The light, when, as the sun goes down in the west at the, the far end of the field, the poles, which, believe it or not, are invisible, 90% invisible, so 10% visible, in the middle of the day, designed that way because these poles are honed to such perfection that they reflect the desert around them and you don't see them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't believe that, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And then, as the light, as this, as your, you experience the transit of Earth. The, you know, we know it in our heads. We know we're moving. We're on a body moving through space. But when you, but, but, the artist ensured that we experience this. Those of us who pay close attention, because as the Earth turns and the sun appears to drop towards the horizon, the farthest poles, which are silvery you know, matte the tips of them light up incandescent like like a, like a sparkler just, mm-hmm. just for a second and then they pass it on to the ones closer to you and they in turn go dark and recede and it literally felt to me as this passed on down the, the row it was both our human neuronal synapses writ large, mm-hmm. and that the way that we, our brains fire a message. And it was also, to me, a representation of the fact of one human life, that we, in this tableau of life, we get to burn incandescent and brilliant for just this finite, infinitesimally short period of time. And then we too, just like that pole I watched, go dim, we too step back and give the stage, pass it on and give, the, give it to somebody else. And I just thought, that's it. That's what this whole, you know, this whole thing I've been, this whole thing I've been on with James Agee, who burned so brightly as a, as a human, flawed, beautiful um, writer and artist. He died at the age of 45. He yeah. just, boom, in the back of a, of a cab, he just died. 
and the the what he called uh, what he all he wanted he said all he wanted was the 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 uh, the cruel radiance of what is. That's all he was looking for, just that, that's all. You know, the cruel radiance of what is, which is all that Walter de Maria was showing, and to me anyway. Now I wonder if the people I was with, uh, who it was really windy that first night that I had this experience, and they were inside the cabin, and I was in that field by myself. I stayed in it until all the light went out of the sky. I stayed in it until the, this crescent moon came up, and I think it did, or maybe I'm imagining that. I think, but there was a crescent moon, and they they didn't care to come out, so I was out there by myself. You know, all through were the these night. strangers to you? I really want to ask you a ton oh, of questions sure, about sure, this experience, sure. but I'm yeah, not going to. Strangers. But I'm super curious total about strangers. it. They were total strangers, art people. Obviously, no, not that, that's why I think it was great. I had the feel. They were had. It was a father daughter, um, Charlie and Holly Rogers. If y'all are ever listening to this, <laughs> they were on. Uh, I, I didn't ask, but I think they were on a birthday or some kind of celebration, and I couldn't tell if it was. Uh, marking a moment that was sad as if somebody had passed or if it was a milestone birthday I don't know but they were about early 70s and about late 30s early 40s and they were on the last of their southwestern art uh, land site tour and this Mm -hmm. was the last stop I think they were just kind of over it which I can't I, I, I will say out loud, I don't know how you could say that about this place. I imagine you but, do have to be in a mindset, though, to be receptive to it, since it's well, such a slow process. That's right, And I do think that's another fact about the beauty of this installation, is it gives you everything you bring to it. Right. So I will say, Walter de Maria, I'm your man. I brought everything <laughs> to it, and I brought everything you would ever imagine anybody would bring. So I think I took away from it as much as... I, you know anybody could possibly take it was it was magnificent and so, I've, I've gone back and in contrast yeah. to those things where uh, both of those men are mm-hmm. well I don't know about the but but the the lightning fields definitely you said it's it's very uh, mundane mm-hmm. objects that make this kind of beautiful transcendent mm-hmm. art but your objects are not, I mean, they're, you're writing, so mm-hmm. they're creative artifacts, which have an interesting, you know, it history. It has no value to anybody but me. Well, I mean, I mean, the, the word will, no, no, the written word will, and that's certainly not my <laughs> intention and my hope, but that piece of paper that is a third version of something, or, or fourth version, and maybe a hundred years from now, if the book is everything I want it to be, it will have been of value, and, you right. know, the historians will have to come and peel that gold leaf Can't off. Can they get the, the x-rays? There must be some <laughs> exactly. kind of x-ray where they can exactly. see that. Exactly. But what is the other... You said you had your writing and uh-huh. found, uh, like, uh-huh. letters. What kind of found stuff is uh, in found there? Found papers. Okay, like, that is a very fancy word for something I might have bought, let's say, at San Flax. Okay. <laughs> for so not uh, like uh, you didn't collect someone else's writing no, or and, somebody... No, but there is that, too. That There okay. is that. I, I, I jumped too callously, too quickly. Um, it's mostly my work. It is also uh, things like newspaper um, articles I might have saved uh, that were of interest to me, reviews of my own work when back when back in the day when it was in the Sunday paper instead mm-hmm. of you know online. Um, uh, yes, indeed, some old found letters that I was entranced with once, and I don't really know why and. It was hard for me to throw them away, so I used those sorts of things to think. Well, I'm 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 making art out of them, so I'm not throwing them away. So yeah, there are other people's letters, some to me, written to me, notes, um, letters, and postcards. And but most of it is just as prosaic as it gets. It's like a third draft, fourth time I printed it out. Um, copy of an essay I was writing or something I was correcting or so there's this transformation uh Jerry Cullum mentioned Ellen Etsui uh-huh, in yeah, his yeah, yeah. Uh, review yeah. which you know is lots of gold and yeah. kind of everyday objects yeah. uh turning into something mm-hmm. more what about these pieces that we're looking at right here that look like uh, uh, large format negatives is that well, what they are that's exactly what they are okay. they are 
Uh, they are for, for they are glass plate negatives from around from the late 1800s to around 1910 or 12 are the are the dates that I that I've seen on them that I got at um, flea market in Chelsea, New York, mm-hmm. in uh, Lower Manhattan. Um, they are. I, I bought the first one thinking, I don't know, but one day I'm going to do something with this because it was a forest and I love the scene. And I put gold leaf on the back of them. Mm. And and it they end up being the one object in this whole exhibition that I think captures that exact idea I'm trying to capture, which is that a memory, a moment in time, so finite and fleeting, has been made permanent, first by the photographer, by fixing this image, putting silver nitrate, I think it is, on the back of a piece of glass and fixing this image that was then maybe printed, maybe not, who knows where the photograph is, cast off, and I found 120 years later and made into what I think is a beautiful object that has the has the gravitas of 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 a of an important memory to me they're not because I don't I don't know even where they were made but I I I will say I just love them I love the depth of them some of them look like japanese lacquer some look like fabric they react differently to the gold I made up I made some yesterday and came into the gallery just feeling like my best friend had betrayed me. I mean, literally, it just, I was so disappointed because I had these magnificent, bigger than these, seven by nine glass plates that had made it 120 years to me, to my hands. And when I did to them the exact same thing I did to these and turned them over, they are as black as that computer screen, oh. obsidian, gone. Oh. But I have another idea that I, that I won't <laughs> mention here that I'm going to do. Uh, incorporating them in a, in a sculpture that I'm going to make but mm. so they're not lost but I'm so disappointed they were so beautiful one of them looked like a a, a romantic painting a Friedrich romantic painting mm-hmm. these two people standing on the shore dressed in black long black she in long black dress and he in like a morning coat looking out into the ocean with this perfect um, rhomboid of sunlight from the set the setting sun on the water, beautiful clouds. It would have been so perfect. Now it's gone. But, but, but what, what I'm going to do, I think, is I read this story of Matthew Brady, who was a Civil War photographer, who gave us all those just rent, heart-rending photographs of battlefields, soldiers on the battlefield. When he, I think this, these details won't be exact, but the story is true. When he closed his shop and either sold or gave away or left behind his glass negatives, they were used uh, in Victorian times and and a little bit earlier for conservatory panes and greenhouse panes and eventually in the over time just gave up their images to the air and the light and the images faded forever. They're gone. And I just think that is the most poetic thought I've ever heard. And I want to make a structure out of out of out of glass negatives. So so somehow there'll be gold on the outside, and nobody take that idea <laughs> if, I, if I don't get to it for a few years. But that's what those are. That's exactly what they are. Well, thanks so much, Donna, yeah, for talking to me today welcome. and sharing all of these great you're stories welcome. around your art. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for letting me talk about my art, and I loved meeting you and. Hope we'll have another occasion to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thanks again to Donna Mintz and to Sandler Hudson Gallery for letting us record this episode in their back room. Donna Mintz will be in residence in June at the Lillian E. Smith Center of Piedmont College, revisiting the book that inspired the visual art we discussed in this episode. With a working title of Stars at Noon, Her book explores two disparate works that address the sublime. James Agee and Walker Evans' 1941 masterwork, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, and Walter DeMario's installation, The Lightning Field. You can find more information, as well as pictures and links to topics that we discussed in this episode, on the Peachy Keen page of my website at Vivian Liddell, that's V-I-V-I-A-N-L-I-D-D-E-L-L dot com.
If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or pledge your financial support by going to our Patreon page. You can also find that link on the Peachy Keen page of my website. Until next time, I hope you're all enjoying the last buds of our two short spring here in Georgia and that your days are peachy keen.